presents Welcome to episode 11 of I Dream of Cameras, the podcast about cameras and camera collecting, brought to you by the gang at the Sunny 16 Podcast. My name is Jeff Greenstein. And my name is Gabe Sachs. We're on episode 11. 11. 11. We're shocked every uh, who week, would have but thought? this is really, uh, 11 feels like we're going into another, you know, world. <laughs> it does. It feels <laughs> like we're seasoned. Like oh they've done uh, more than, they've done over ten episodes. I think they we're podcast veterans. I think that's what they call us now. I think, we, now. Are. I think okay. we are good. And as veterans, we are bringing you our long promised Polaroid show. This Polaroid. is our Polaroid show. Yeah, it's very exciting. Gabe and I are going to talk about instant cameras and instant photography for a bit, and then in the back half of our show, we have an interview. Woo! Our first interview. This Very is exciting. exciting. Very uh, it's exciting. an interview with Savannah-based Polaroid photographer Emily Earle, whose book Late Night Polaroids is a total knockout. So stay with us for that interview. In the back half of the show, she is amazing. Yes. Are you excited? I am. She's it's, amazing. The whole the new book's world incredible. is dawning. Yep. Yes. Let's start by talking about the state of instant photography 2021. Are you shooting instant photography these days? Are you actually shooting Polaroid or Instax or whatever? I am not. And this is why. Because oh, okay. as you know, Polaroid the subject is a very polarizing subject. It's as we know. literally polarizing. Polaroidizing. It's actually polarizing. Yes, polarizing? <laughs> polarizing. I want to get to the polarizing nature of the thing we call Polaroid in a minute. Okay. Because we've complained a lot about we do. Polaroid we on do. our show, and this will be no exception. Right. But I want to start, let's talk about the peel apart yes. world. Did you have those cameras when you were growing up? Coolest things ever. I loved them. I loved them because it was not only... The fun of taking the picture wasn't over after you got done taking the picture. Yeah. You took the picture and then the fun really began. What was the first instant camera you had? I can't remember the first, but land camera, but I can't remember the number, but, but I remember that every time I used it, it was, everyone wanted to see what was going on. Yeah. It was like, you took it out and you waited (laughs) <laughs> yeah. You waited, yeah. and then you peeled it. No one knows if it's going to come out or not, but everyone's excited about it. And I think that, you know, it was so much fun. And I remember that was the most exciting part. And then giving, you know, giving the picture to friends, and I loved it. I mean, it was one of my favorite things it's ever. It's magical. Yeah. I mean, we've talked about this. I don't even know where I got my first Polaroid camera. I I have a sense that it might have been a gift from my grandmother. Mm-hmm. It was the Square Shooter 2. Yep which was one of those peel-away cameras. And I remember very vividly it had as an option, you could buy an aftermarket Polaroid timer that you oh, would wow. stick to the side of it and you'd wind it up to 60 and then you had to wait the 60 seconds before you could peel. I remember this and those actually, were the, yeah. As you said, those were the most, and it would go zzzz, yeah. And those were the most <laughs> exciting 60 seconds because yeah. you were waiting to see if you had anything. And, and you it used know. flash bulbs. Yep. Yeah. And I loved it. And it was, lit- they called it a square shooter because it was a square frame. It used right. type 88. And I loved it. And then I feel like maybe the next camera I had was a Time Zero One Step. Wow. I don't think I ever had another kind of peel away camera. I, right. I remember, I think my grandfather had like an automatic 100 right. or something. And it looked like a strange 
it you know with the old bellows and the weird focusing method with a yeah. lever and it seemed very antique to me but i don't know if i ever actually used it so i went straight from kind of peel apart to like the integral film right right what about you did you what was your first integral film camera i well the next thing i went to was really the sx70 you know oh, okay. as crazy as that is i went i went i went from i i really jumped a bunch and went yeah. um used that one camera which i think was probably the one that you had Oh, the square, the square shooter Yeah, I think two? it was a square shooter. Yeah. It really feels like that was it. And used it, loved it. And then my dad used the SX-70 for medical stuff. It was in his oh, lab. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. So that's oh, when cool. he, he let me use it. And I was like, this is, this is futuristic. <laughs> yeah. When did you get... Okay, so when did you get back into shooting with the peel-apart films? Because I know you and I both have 195. Yeah, right? I, I got into it about 12 years ago. Yeah. And I really, I, I talked to someone who had a 195 and they loved it and they did the process that you were very familiar with, but I was not, you know, in the field where you have a negative also and you have the picture. Right. I mean, that's such yeah. an exciting thing. And I really started doing a lot of Polaroids with it, with the close-up attachment. And oh, I cool. absolutely loved it. And if the if the film didn't go as crazy as it did and obviously being discontinued, but actually the aftermarket prices weren't so crazy. I'd use it every shoot as another element. Yeah, it is really cool. The way I got back into it, just sort of improbably, I think I bought an automatic 250 at a yard sale. I was like, yeah. oh, an automatic 250. I didn't even know if they made the film, but it was like $2. Yeah. And it was around the same time, like about 10 or 12 years ago. Yeah. $2, and I was like, uh, okay. And then I did the research in the miracle that, that Fuji was still making this film stock. And I just started shooting like crazy. I still remember quite vividly the first role I shot was FP3000B, and I took it up to Griffith Park Observatory. Wow. And I took all of these pictures, and the quality of that black and white image was just extraordinary. It had this feeling like you the picture had been teleported to you from 1955. And it was also, there was a sharpness and, a, and you know, yes. crispness to these portraits that wasn't happening with the other polaroid film it just yeah. wasn't to me and yeah. so shooting with that you know 3000 was my was the dream i loved amazing. it amazing yeah and then i got into shooting i don't remember what this was before or after i got the 195 of course we all wanted like a 180 or a 195 right. these top of the line cameras with the really fast lenses but then i found out about the bleach gel trick right which I know you've done, right? You've no, done that no, as well. No, no, that was the that was the thing that I was like, oh my gosh, all my friends are doing this, and then by the time I got into it, I was out of it. In brief, for the listeners who might not know what we're talking about, it I didn't know this. Again, this was something I only found out like doing research on the internet about shooting peel apart film. FP one hundred C has a recoverable negative, but it takes a little bit of elbow grease to get to it. Basically, you protect the front of the negative you put a bleach substance and there's a couple of different things you can use on the back of the negative to dissolve the carbon and then once you wash it you have a translucent like a really good basically four by five negative and sometimes the colors are a little off sometimes there are these purplish washes and stuff but it doesn't matter it's just so damn cool and i thought about how many hundreds of negatives i threw away before i came across this process the gel i use and i've gotten really good at this is a toilet bleach 
Oh, it's you're like kidding. a gel that's used that you spray around the inside edge of a toilet bowl right. to like re- remove the rings from toilets. So it's adhesive a little bit. Right. You know, it sticks like a gel. And that is really easy to use because basically you just spray it on the rectangle on the back of the FP100C negative. You wait about 30 seconds and then you rinse it away. It dissolves. And like I said, well. you protect the front and you're left with it when you scan it, it has higher resolution than your photograph. And it's super cool. So that was really exciting. And I think that sort of lit the afterburner because it was around that time I started buying up as much pack film as I could, especially when I heard it was being discontinued. Smart. And you stockpiled too, did you not? A little bit. I did not not stockpile. I think I'm down to maybe... Four packs, as sad oh, as that dear. is. So well, I've been. I'm you're not even lucky looking to have at me them. as a friend. Exactly. You're I lucky know. to have me as a friend. I know. I, I understand. The other thing that I got into when I because I remember as a kid reading about these Polaroid backs for yeah. standard cameras, and I always thought that was like the best of both worlds. Like if you could pull the back off a 35 millimeter camera. How incredible would that be? Because we all had 35 millimeter cameras. Especially before digital. This was like the coolest yes. thing ever. So that's right. the way I would be thinking about buying cameras would be I'd buy the camera and I would go buy the back. And I, I yeah. have all these Polaroid backs, these NPCs and different kinds of Polaroid backs for, for different cameras. And Okay, tell me about it. the ones you have. Because I think you have like Hasselblad and RB67 yeah, so and the, that kind the of thing, The ones right? that I have is I have the... Um, I used to have, I have an RZ67 now, but I had an RB67, I had the back for that, had Hasselblad, had, I have the contacts, Ooh. 645. Oh, which is very hard to come yeah, by. Yeah, I, I, but I, again, it wasn't then, then it was like everyone had them and was sure, sure, you could have one. Wow. And so it's almost every system, what I don't have and what I never got into not knowing enough about it were like the 35 millimeter versions and things yeah. like that. And I have those. Yes. I have those. And I remember reading about these in popular photography. They're called the Forscher Proback. And they were made by a legendary New York-based camera repairman who passed away a few years ago named Marty Forscher. And he devised what was basically just an ingenious hack to take a fiber optic block. This is an example of one that I am holding up. A fiber optic block. So that effectively what you're getting is a contact print. Right. This is the one that came with my Pentax 6x7. Wow. <laughs> wow. So look at that. So you're getting, I mean, it doesn't take up the entire negative, but yeah. it takes up most of it. So you can get pretty nice yeah. prints uh, out of the back of this. But it's the standard Polaroid rig hacked with this fiber optic block and a back. And I have it not just for this, but then I have the very strange 35 millimeter edition, which unless you have the instructions, you have no idea how to use it. Have you seen these? Never. This is the craziest thing. Okay, this is the one for the Nikon FM. And by the way, kids, if this interests you, these are all over eBay and they are cheap. This is only about 20 bucks. Right. 20 bucks. Just to put that in context, when this item was new, it cost $600. Right. Because they were used for proofing by 35 millimeter photographers. So you'd have your Nikon, you know, F2, but then next door to it, you'd have an FE with the Polaroid back on it to check your lighting. This is the genius thing about it. Okay, look, you can see how it just takes up the tiniest part of your Polaroid frame, which seems like a waste. 
Here's the genius part. You see this? This little fabric tab. What this is for is that when you pull out the frame, you only pull it to the length of this tab, and then you can take a second shot on the same frame and then pull it the rest of the way. Brilliant. Yep. And so you can use this to make these very interesting diptychs, which I do a lot, and it's so much fun. And again, these are items that, when new, were fantastically expensive, and you could only order them custom from Marty in New York, and now, now they're everywhere. People who got rid of their 35 millimeter rigs, whatever. Wow. Yeah. That's amazing. And then I'm just going to do a second on this. <laughs> it, it, first of all, Jeff is going to put this on the iDream Cameras Instagram. It is absolutely space age looking, is what I get to say. This tell is you. the craziest thing. I don't even remember reading about this back in the day because this was the most exotic and bizarre accessory. This was made for the Nikon F, and I think also the F2 and F3. And it is called a Speed Magni, M-A-G-N-Y. And it is a device which starts out as a back for your Nikon. Mine is an F. It has a mirror and then an enlarging lens. An EL Nikkor enlarger lens is inside here. And then there is a second mirror that reflects the image again. And then it comes around to your standard Polaroid back. You lose eight stops <laughs> of light using this thing. So 3,000, I yeah. mean, you get down to a reasonable, maybe it's, what does that make it? About 125. Yeah. It's not bad. Yeah. But the absurdity, I mean, I guess this is for dentists or something, right? Yeah, you're Isn't not that kind sure. Of this it's more? holding it. When you all see this, uh, when we post it, <laughs> it's the actual holding it and walking around with it. Absurd. It's really absurd. And I got to be honest. Okay, I got this on eBay for a song. They often go for thousands of dollars now because it's a very rare accessory. Mine was very cheap. I I made a lowball offer, and for some reason, the guy took it. It's in wonderful condition. I actually have yet to use it. Oh, you got (gasps) to use it now. I got to use it. I got to use it. But I got my... Anyway, so that's next up. That's next up. And by the way, there was a Kickstarter. Have you heard about the Instant Magni? No. Mean anything to you? No. There was a Kickstarter by a guy who devised a back like this for contemporary 35 millimeter cameras so you could shoot in sex films with them. That's amazing. And it was a successful Kickstarter, and I think you can buy a thing called an Instant Magni, which was basically a knockoff of the old Speed Magni. Got it. All right. Now let's talk about the integral film cameras, the SX70 and the like. I see behind you, you have a Sonar SX70. Tell me about that. So this is my dad. My dad was um, an endocrinologist. He was also in New York, had a lab. He was one of the first people to study the effects of cholesterol on the heart. So oh, wow. he was always debating. Oh, so he contributed to society. Yeah, oh, he, yes, he really, he really <laughs> did. He, he really did some valuable stuff. So this was in his lab. And he would use this probably to take pictures of thyroids. I'm not kidding. Wow. So he, he would probably um, use it. And then he gave it to me. And it, you know, the Time Zero SX-70 autofocus, I loved it. I mean, it was one of yeah. those things. This is one of the ones that I shot it into the ground, but I love it. I, this one needs a little repair. But the other two that I've gotten at garage sales for 10 and $12 each oh, yeah. uh, work great. You know, it's just not, um, the film's a little different, which we'll discuss later. Yeah, but I remember when I was a kid, 
and I, my dad had that Minox C, and I thought, wouldn't it be amazing if there were a compact instant camera? Brilliant. And I, I mean, I remember quite vividly the NC70 debuted, if I'm not mistaken, in like '74, mm-hmm. right? Something like Somewhere that. So I was 10, 11 years old, something like that. It was a miracle, and it was expensive. My grandfather had one. And I remember the first time I saw it with that leather and st- what appeared to be steel. It was actually, pl- you know, plastic with this polymerized metallic finish. But it was the most extraordinary object, and the way it folded and yeah. stuff, it was just magical. Yep. Couldn't believe it. You know, if you on YouTube, you can watch the film that Charles and Ray Eames made for the introduction of the SX-70, and it's... You know, if you know the Eames's films like Powers of Ten and so yep. forth, they were incredibly good at making, uh, you know, exotic scientific concepts accessible. It's so exciting. It kind of recaptures how exciting the SX-70 was when it debuted. So cool. Did you shoot with that camera All when you were time. a kid? All the time. Yeah. I loved it. The best. I absolutely yeah. loved it. And it just, that again, another type of magic. There was the peel yeah. bar magic, and then there was a, and that thing came out of the front. It was the greatest thing ever. It was so cool. And okay, so did you keep shooting with your with your integral film cameras through the eighties and nineties until Polaroid started? On to- and off, yeah. I mean, as you remember, you know, whenever you're on a set, they would be right. uh, using Polaroids for um, wardrobe continuity. Yes, you know, on and on and on and on. So. Uh, yeah, I shot with them on and off, but it was like, wasn't a big deal. I think until I got to the 195, I saw that was, that clicked with me. Yeah, you know, and those Polaroid images from the SX-70 and the like, they weren't the sharpest in the world, and the no. colors were a little off and strange. They had a kind of ghostly, luminous, spectral quality that was, it wasn't the sharpest in the world, right. but it had a feel to it that was really special. Right. Did you ever do any SX-70 manipulation with the Time Zero it's film? It's so funny you said this, but I did a little bit with the scratching and stuff like that. But yeah. what I really love was the, um, I had a day lab and doing those Polaroid transfers. What's a day lab? So the day lab, it was this contraption that you put your pack film in and you would, sh- you put a slide in and it would take a picture of the slide or picture, whatever, you know, and you take it out and you would peel it apart, right? Yeah. You have your picture and then you take that emulsion side and you put it on some art paper and use a roller and on and on. I loved doing that. That was one of my favorite things. Um, I remember going to Italy and then coming back with these, you know, really colorful, you know, I shot a lot of slide film and then made these Polaroid transfers from that. And I did, I, you know, I tried some emulsion stuff, but that was only a I few times. I never did any of those things. Oh, it was that so much so fun. Cool. The emulsion stuff was just, you know, just, you know, pouring this liquid, light-sensitive liquid, and, and you'd sort of, yeah. you know, put it under the enlarger, and all of a sudden you'd have this crazy, cool image. I love that. Right. But Polaroid transfers I loved. Yeah, so when Polaroid went under Oy. in stages... Did you go through all the emotions? I continue to go through all the emotions. That's the crazy thing. Shouldn't it, shouldn't I be yeah. over it? No, yeah. I, I can't. I, it's so frustrating that you can't. And then and then to see how popular it is now, 
and how people are so excited about Instax. And yeah. so much, you know, there's so much more that can be done. It's makes me nuts. I have to say that, interestingly enough, when when Polaroid 1.0 went under, I, you know, it was like, that's sad. Right. I think at the time I was getting into digital photography, so it did not seem like a catastrophic loss. I wasn't someone who was shooting tons and tons of integral film. It was still very expensive. Right. You know, it was always expensive shooting those films. And so I don't think I went through the heartbreak that a lot of artists did who were completely infatuated with these Polaroid films. But interestingly, when the Impossible Project started to bring it back, I got excited. I when did I started too. to see that they were going back and re-engineering Polaroid film, even though the early films were really sketchy. Yeah. And it was so exciting yep. to see that they could do that. And it was scrappy and they were artists and it was improbable. It was impossible, literally impossible. impossible. Yep. And I was tremendously supportive of that. Yeah. And it really felt like it was a little bit in parallel to the Lomo revolution. Right. It felt like it was driven by artists and fans. And that's part of what made it exciting. Yeah, definitely. And they made duochrome films and weird, like, one-off films with distorted colors and stuff. And it was exciting. And then... It okay. wasn't. <laughs> I would like you to talk a little bit about that because I feel like I'm always the one carping about Polaroid originals and about Polaroid. Tell me your feelings about what has happened. Well, my feeling is this well i have a lot of feelings but here here's here's just to put it you know in a nutshell i think that the frustrating thing is that the excitement was because of that film okay so so yeah. the, what you shot with the original stuff you shot with in let's just say every camera every polaroid every system okay that was the excitement that's what you remember that's what all these art books were made from. That's the thing. Okay. So to me, as a novice in that kind of business, I would think that the goal would be, let's get to that. And yeah. let's just get to that. And if we can get to that, all those people and their kids are going to love it. They're going to eat it up. They're going to go, it's back. It's back. Um, not quite what's happened. What has happened? And I think, dead? well, it's just not, there. The, the, a lot of things. Okay, so there's there's concentration. I feel like the concentration is on things that they shouldn't be concentrating on. I, you know, I will talk about this, but cameras and there's so many other things, novelty stuff, instead yeah. of what I feel is like taking it seriously. It feels like, oh my gosh, the focus should be right there. And you'll, I mean, Right now, you'll just kill. It'd be the greatest thing ever. Yeah, but it's sort I of become like this what weird they've thing. lost. Yes. Yeah, I went to an exhibit at the MIT Museum about the birth of Polaroid, and yes, it was a consumer product. Okay, in the same way that the original Macintosh was a consumer product, right? But it also had this coolness. Because it was aimed at people who wanted to ride the edge, at people who wanted to make art or do something 
revolutionary. Right, And exactly. Apple always had that revolutionary edge to it. And I feel like Polaroid had the same thing. And the Impossible Project guys had that same thing. Like, we're revolutionaries. We're going to bring this film back from extinction. And they were passionate we're about Jurassic it. We're going to Jurassic Park this shit. Yep. And it was very exciting. Yep. And... It is now just turned into a generic consumer product that does not feel aimed at photographers. It feels aimed at people who want the, a quick picture. The, yeah, <laughs> and it's so boring. Yeah, I don't. I've carped about this a lot, and I'm only going to do this for a total of eight seconds. I don't want a Stranger Things camera. I don't want a Lacoste camera. Today they announced a Tava camera, a camera that comes with sandals. That is not. What photographers want. What photographers want is better image quality. Right. The round frame, I thought bringing back the round frame was kind of Was nice. interesting, yeah. That's nice. I like that they're trying to make duochrome again, okay? Great. Duochrome was an incredible innovation by Impossible Project. Polaroid never made a duochrome, so that's great. But gosh, guys, make it for photographers, and everyone else will follow. Everyone else that's will follow. That's what's so disappointing. So true. And I feel like, you know, Instax has never held any charm for me. And that's really weird because it's a pretty good consumer product. But it doesn't feel like it's aimed at photographers. No. It feels like it's aimed at kids. Definitely. Kids making pictures to stick on their fridge or to press in their notebook or yep. whatever. Or to, yeah, it, it doesn't feel like it's, it's aimed at artists. And I know artists are an edge case, but we also drive the middle you know, we drag everybody else along with us, and that's what's so disappointing. And I just don't think the guys who are running it get it. They're looking for a ways to maximize profit. The petite Polaroid camera, I, I understand why they're doing yep, that. Totally. I totally get it. There's nothing wrong with that. But in parallel, I just wish they had spent some portion of the last five years innovating with the film, making the film better. Yep. Or making I don't know it who to complain same. to. Or even yes. How about that? Yes. <laughs> it's so funny. I was at Amoeba Records the other day. Very and exciting. I was flipping through the stacks. Do you know Courtney Barnett, the musician Courtney Barnett? Mm -mm. She's very good. The cover of her, not her last record, but I think the record before, is a Polaroid duochrome shot in Great. black and red. And you know how sometimes with these impossible project films, the goo doesn't get all the way to the edge of yeah. the frame, so there's a little divot. Yeah. Her name is in the divot. So great. And what a great it's idea. funny because I'm of two minds. On one hand, isn't it exciting that she's using Polaroid imagery for the cover of her record? But the divot is a flaw. Yeah. <laughs> it's not supposed to do that. It sort of memorializes the fact that Polaroid isn't there yet. Right. Oh, <sighs> I'm telling you. And what, what? But you have an Instax camera. You were running through your collection, and you own an Instax. I camera. do own an Instax camera, and you know, I, I'm always looking for things like different things to do with portraits. And I think sure. that I was so married to the 195, and I I love you know that imagery. And I was just saying, oh, what else can I do with this? And you know, you get a picture. It's just not you know. There's not a lot to it. It's more like capturing a moment as in, you know, when you're out at a party or something. You know, it has a flash. I wonder and... why that is. I wonder why the Instax image just doesn't feel vivid or exciting. I don't know why. I don't know. Is there something in the quality of the... I don't know. 
just has never quite excited me. But I mean, what's it going to take to get back to uh, that that uh, peel apart? I don't know. But I mean, did you ever use one instant? Did you ever use the attempt to revive the one instant revival? Yeah, not so much. Not so good. No, not so good. Admirable, but just not so. Okay, so someone has the machines. Let's just assume. Yes, they're somewhere. They're somewhere. I don't think they were destroyed. I think they're somewhere. Someone has the instruction book. You bet. (laughs) Yeah. And it just feels like, what is the... Why wouldn't you make an initial investment and see what happens? I'm sure there's a minimum amount they have to make and then see how fast it sells out. And after that, 22 seconds goes by, they can make more. Yeah. The thing that's weird is, you know, we always used to hear that that Gillette's business model was, we sell you the razors cheap and we charge you for the blades. Right. And so you would think instinctively to look at the situation with instant cameras, you can't really make the money selling the instant cameras. There are thousands upon thousands of instant cameras out there, both the peel apart and the integral film cameras. The money you make should be on the film, right? Definitely. I don't quite understand why there is this orientation by Polaroid toward making cameras. I know that some of them are old. Yep. I noticed that the Teva camera is actually made out of refurbished Polaroid 600 cameras. They don't even manufacture it. Oh, boy. They buy up Polaroid 600 cameras, no doubt, on eBay or at your state sales, just like we do. And then they just restore them and resell them for 10 times the price. Right. But I just feel like the the razor blade model, it feels like if they embrace the razor blade model, we should be running a company. What are we even doing? Look how smart we are. I would love to start. I'm telling you, I just, the peel apart. I would just like, here's what you do. You ready? Do that. Do the ones that were there. Just make those two films again. They will sell like crazy. Crazy. I completely agree. I think people would go bananas. Those camera prices would shoot up. It would be... The only thing is, there is this one little asterisk on those peel-apart things, is they generate a lot of trash. You know, Edwin Land developed the SX-70 because he was an environmentalist. Right. And he didn't like the idea that you were throwing stuff away. But if you made the FP-100C kind of thing with a negative, people would not be throwing anything away but the white tab. Maybe. Exactly. Okay, we should close this out because we're getting to the Emily interview. But before we do... Do you have a favorite Polaroid photographer, Polaroid book, Polaroid documentary that we can recommend to our listeners? I'll I'll tell you what. I, um, you know Andre Tarkovsky. Oh yeah, his Polaroid book is great. Yeah, that's 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 the one I like. You know this Russian <gasps> filmmaker, you know who made these really sort of interesting and and slow movies, but always with beautiful imagery. You know, and and that really translated into his Polaroid work. So. I would definitely say Andre Tarkovsky. I really love his book. That book, I think, is still in print, Tarkovsky yeah. Polaroids. Yeah. That's really good. How about a documentary or film about Polaroid? Did mm. you see either of them? Time Zero or Instant Dreams? Instant Dreams. Yeah. They're both quite good. Yep. Time Zero, I think, is pretty great. I have to see that. It's interesting you're mentioning a Polaroid book by a filmmaker because I love Vim Vender's Polaroid yep. photography. He also, his cinematographer, Robbie Mueller... It's a little harder to come by, but Robbie Mueller published a dual book of his 
interior and exterior SX-70 photography. It's exactly what you were talking about. It was like just a check lighting. Yeah. But he had saved shoeboxes of these Polaroids from Paris, Texas and American Friend and all the films he shot for vendors. And so he did a dual book interior and exterior shots, which is great. So I would absolutely recommend that. And there's also and, going out yeah. there, there's tons of them. I mean, there's, you know, Ansel Adams has one, you know, it's uh, Andy Warhol. I mean, you just, you'll see yes. the more research, but go on. Yes. The, um, the William Eggleston SX-70 book. I don't know how easy it is to come by, but it has the most beautiful reproductions of SX-70 frames that I have ever seen in a book. It looks like actual SX-70s yeah, like it's right there on the pressed page. into a book. They're so vivid, and they really give you that specific color palette that we love so much about those old films. So if you can find the Eggleston SX-70 book, I feel like it had a very limited run, um, but go for it. That's what I would recommend. Nice. All right. Well, we'll obviously cover Polaroid again. I think you're hearing that it's a subject that both Gabe and I are really passionate about. We were going to say sensitive <laughs> about, but yes, okay. Sensitive and opinionated about. <laughs> but let's, we're going to roll into now our interview with uh, Emily Earle. Uh, I don't know exactly how we'll make this transition. It's going to happen. But I'll do some sort of edit right about here <laughs> that will roll into it. All right, so let's welcome to our show Emily Earle. She's a Savannah-based photographer. Her latest book is called Late Night Polaroids, published last summer. It's a compendium of shots she took over, how many years, Emily, was that book in the making? Eight years. Amazing. It's an amazing book. So I'm going to give you the link either in the show notes or maybe I'll say it out loud or I'll get Emily to say it out loud. But it's a brilliant book. And if you love Polaroid photography, you absolutely have to check this out. Please welcome Emily Earle. Yay. Thanks for having me, Chris. <laughs> I raved to Emily a little bit about her book, but I'm going to just do it again. If you like yes. Polaroid photography, these are shots primarily on FP3000B. Am I correct about that? That's right. So mm -hmm. this is peel apart Polaroid at its best. And Emily has such a feel for her subjects, for the nightlife in Savannah, Georgia. And it really comes across, there's such a sense of place and personality to your work. And I think it really is extraordinary. So again, we're very, very grateful to have you here. Well, thank you so much. Of course. Okay. Can you talk a little bit about your background as an artist and a photographer before you discovered Polaroid? Sure. You know, I both my parents are photographers. So I definitely grew up, you know, they put a camera in my hand, like a disposable camera in my hands when I was four on a vacation. Um, I got back some decent pictures for a four-year-old. And I think it... Uh, gave me the confidence even as a little kid to kind of try try it out and seeing my parents both, you know, doing that for their their lives and their their passion projects. Um, obviously I was very curious about what on earth were they up to. Um, and then, you know, in high school, I took a couple darkroom classes. Um, I had a really great teacher. Um, the magic of the darkroom really just uh, got me right away. And, you know, of course, when you're, when, at least when I was a, in high school, we took Polaroids all the time just for fun. So, I mean, I have probably a thousand of them in a box, um, you know, and even back then I had a, a land camera that used the peel apart. And back then it was that original Polaroid 669 or the 667 was the black and white. Right. Um, and that was so fun. And then I also did this SX-70 back then. And then, you know, I guess I just kind of picked it back up later, you know, I worked at a photo lab, um, 
my first job in high school when I was 15, I would, you know, get my friends to drop me off at, at the photo lab after school. And um, I would trade in my, you know, minimum wage paycheck for <laughs> Florida. That's um, amazing. I, kept, I kept the job forever because of access to the equipment and, and wholesale film. And uh, that's when I started the project because I worked there forever. So yeah. Was, was your high school transitioning out of analog toward digital during the time that you were learning about darkroom or was that not really on the radar no. yet? No, not at all. Because I mean, you know, I, that was like the year 2000 or 1999 or something. So we had a phenomenal darkroom yeah. in my high school. It, it was like an arts an art school. So yeah. And so when did digital start to come on and when did you put aside the film cameras for a while? When did that start to happen? Um, well, I don't know. Or if did it's you happened. ever? Yeah. <laughs> I love hearing um, that. Yeah. You know, uh, I kind of, I experienced the digital side of photography in, in more of an output rather than a capture. I mean, now I am actually kind of starting to like, like my digital camera a little more. <laughs> I know this um, feeling. Yeah. Exactly. Like I, I have one because as a photographer, I, I need to have that. It's a necessary tool now for certain things. Um, but I don't want to like it. Mm. <laughs> so, um, but I do, you know, I, I output all of my work digitally. So I'm making archival um, pigment prints of the Polaroids. Um, and I actually run a print shop out of my studio, um, which is where I am right now. Yeah. And, um, so that's kind of how I use digital more, more so. So I'm, sh I'm capturing, um, analog as much as possible and then scanning and then editing in Photoshop and then printing digitally. So, so when you discovered that fateful Polaroid pro pack camera at a yard sale, this was a return mm -hmm. to a film that you had really used before, right? Yeah. I mean, by the time that that happened, you know, Polaroid, I guess had gone under, but then I don't, I'm unclear about the whole line of events, but I think like Fuji got the recipe yes. or got one of the machines and then basically picked up the, the production. And then all of a sudden it was the same film basically, but it was branded as that FP 3000 B. Yes. And we were, we were carrying that in the store that I worked at. Right. So, so I saw the camera, I knew exactly what it was and what type of film it would take. It was two bucks. And I was like, hell yeah, best yard sale ever. Yeah. Um, it was it was a wonderful yard sale score. That's so great. I remember when I bought a Polaroid Automatic 250, I just assumed I was going to have to be buying expired Polaroid film to put in it. And like you, I was flabbergasted to learn that one of the biggest film companies on the planet was still manufacturing film for it. It was such a gift. Yeah. And particularly because both FP3000B and FP100C were so damn good. That it yeah. was like it, they, it was like you didn't miss a step between the mm -hmm. old Polaroid stocks that I had remembered. I grew up on a square shooter too, which took Type eighty eight film, which looked a lot nice. like one hundred C, slightly yeah. slower, but really really good. And so to me, it was miraculous that you could still buy film for these cameras that at that point were thirty forty years old. Kind of amazing. Yeah. Was there a so there really wasn't? I was going to ask about the learning curve with the Pro Pack. Was there a learning curve at all, or did you just sort of pick up where you left off? Um, you know, I, I didn't have a Pro Pack before. I can't remember what the one I had before was. It was more of just like a plastic box. At least for the Pro Pack, there's bellows, 
it folds out. I have it right here. I know this isn't on video, but that's um, fine. Hold it up and we'll do a screen capture. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Our favorite sure. thing. Yes, that's right. You know what? Uh, today, someone came by my studio and they were like, hey, I brought you something and it's a mint condition Polaroid Pro Pack. Wow. No. Oh, that's so nice. now I have two. Really nice. Very kind. But so yeah, this is this is it. Did it come with the flash gun and the whole mount that you're showing us? Yes. That's great. And this is actually the second flash because the first one, I think I just used it so much that one night in the middle of the night it was raining. I was outside on Halloween and it started smoking. <laughs> oh no. Because uh, oh, I think of like how uh the humidity or yeah. something. I don't know what right. happened, but um so this is number two. I had to get this off of eBay separately. Right. Um, but and yeah, but I mean, it's it's a it's a great looking camera. It sure is. Yeah. Well, um, yeah. This is what I was going to ask. You know, I, I don't know how familiar you are, you are with our Smash Hit podcast, but one of the things that we like <laughs> to talk to uh, the one of the things we like to talk about on this show is how different tools in the hands of an artist can change the way you shoot. And I'm, the thing I'm particularly interested in in your case is the way subjects react to you. Because I think if you were holding a Canon, I don't even know if a Canon D70 is a thing, but let's say I just invented that there is a camera called a Canon D70. <laughs> if you were holding the latest and greatest black plastic Canon DSLR, you get an entirely different reaction from a subject than if you're holding a cool old camera with a bellows and a big flash. Yes. Can you talk Absolutely. a little bit about that, about people's curiosity about the tools you're using? Yeah. Um, you know, I mean, I had people, you know, basically I would go out, uh, when I was in the the real heart of this project, I was going out five, six nights a week shooting for this. And I would have total strangers see me down the block and run. Take my picture, take my picture, oh, you know? Great. And sometimes they're awesome looking. And so I'm like, yes, I, I will do that. And other times I was like, no. <laughs> um, you know, and honestly, I mean, to me, because I'm just a photo nerd and it's not that exotic of a camera. Like if somebody was out there with an eight by 10, you know, view camera and all this stuff, I mean, that to me would be really, really special. Um, but I think for especially people in my generation, maybe this is a old, this is an sure. old tiny camera or whatever. It looks that right. way. Yeah. Um, so I think, you know, going up to a total stranger asking, you know, for their picture and then being like, can I have your picture you know, with the camera? I, I've never got a no. That's great. I don't think anyone ever said no. Now I've done similar, I've tried similar things more recently with my digital SLR. And even before I even ask anyone, I almost got like smacked by someone. Yeah. Just, no pictures, just right? holding it and kind of being like, oh, they're really great looking and whatever I'm thinking about trying to figure out how to approach this. And um, it, it was like a little frightening. Wow. Wow. Um, Whole different thing. Because I think people feel they feel more uh, like spied on or like their privacy. There's a privacy issue. Whereas I also think a younger looking woman with a, an a clearly analog camera, most people assume I don't know how to use it. <laughs> oh, brother. I think it's wow. definitely something that into it and so oh well she can take my picture and like nothing will it'll never go anywhere so you're less do you feel like they they 
perceive you as less threatening because you have this exotic piece of kit, whereas you look more profesh with the DSLR in your hand? I think, yeah, because people are now very, that's in their mind, that's that's what a camera is, is this DSLR. Yeah. Um, and it's for press. It's for, you know, public um, view, whereas whereas a film camera, I mean, they, I'm like, I can scan this in and digitize it. It's just as right. It's just know, as invasive. Believe me. <laughs> right. Right. But you know, it's just a different um, perception. So I mean, it, it, that hugely plays into um, the success of the the project, and and I have to kind of be aware of that and accept that. But you know, there's the limitation, the technical limitations of the camera, are kind of the other side of that where. You know, either, even though I'm, I'm pretty comfortable with f-stop and shutter speed and all those sorts of things, I can zone out of that and just focus on the connection between the me and the person or just keeping my eyes peeled for, for who's really looking interesting and who can I engage with, um, you know, half a block away to then walk up and have the moment happen. Um, right. So it kind of allows me to to focus on other things rather than the, that technical noise, I guess. Right. I'm curious. I mean, street photography terrifies me. And I think a lot of people, I don't know, we were speaking about this in one of our recent episodes. I think a lot of photographers who tend to be introverted by nature, I don't know, that may be a sweeping generalization, but I'm going to make it. Uh, the prospect of walking up to a stranger and asking to take their picture is alarming. And do you feel self-conscious or are you able to sort of push through that because you have a job to do? Or is it some other thing I'm not thinking of? I mean, it's a lot of combinations, you know, that in high school, I had the, the, my photo teacher, um, one of the great assignments that she had us do was that weekend we had to go out, we had to every shot you know 36 images on the roll every image had to be of a different stranger that we walk up to them we ask their permission we explain the project and then we take a picture one shot of each subject oh man and i i mean i i kind of consider myself to be more um i'm on the shy side now but god as a 15 year old i was like terribly yeah, terribly shy it scared me to do it. I was terrified to do it, but somehow I kind of worked up the nerve. And after I got a couple shots into the role, I was like, all right, you know, That's like, let's great. go do this. And it was, it was like a really um, good breakthrough for me. And, you know, I love people and I'm a, I really enjoy people watching of course. And um, so it, I don't know, you kind of get over it. Yeah. And does it help that these are clubs in and around Savannah that you frequent, that you know the spaces, you know the employees, you feel safe in those places? Totally. I mean, the same time that, you know, I'm talking about being in high school and working at the photo lab, that was like one side of my life at that time. But the other side was that I was going to all these clubs then, too. Uh, back then, Savannah had a, a great policy of doing all ages music shows and bars and so you could pay a little bit higher of a cover and get these giant embarrassing like sharpie x's <laughs> on your hand showing that you were underage right. but you could go see live music and so um i would do that all the time and it was very meaningful to me as a young person to be able to 
to see that and to meet older people that were artists and musicians. And um, so, yes, I, another part of the success of the project is that, yes, there, it's spaces that I certainly feel comfortable in. What happens when you're like the couple at the bar, like uh-huh. where you see a moment and you've got, you take it, it's amazing. What happens after that flash goes off? Is there sometimes they don't notice? Is it, is it? That oh yeah. I mean, um, I think that the picture that you're talking about, which is one of my favorites in the whole series. Me too. Yeah. I mean, obviously I'm not going to go up and interrupt right. that moment because right. then the picture has gone. Then you got no moment. Yeah. And, and they were so like vibing with each other that I took the picture. They noticed the flash and they were like, Hey, and then they kind of just went back to their conversation. And right. I was like, okay, I'm not going to interrupt that either. And so I kind of just went on my way. Now that was in 2017, weirdly enough, and this is just a Savannah thing. Somebody walked into my studio the other day and they were like, hey, you know, you took a picture of my friend. And that, and so then now I, I just got connected with the guy in the picture wow. and it's like four years later. Wow. Um, and anyway, I, I made him a print and it's That's great to great. kind of know who he is. And yeah. Um, but yeah, I, you you got to pick those moments um, and know when to say something and when not to say something, and um, and I feel good about how I, how I've handled that. But it can be tricky, you know. You want to be respectful, right, um, of people. So when it's an analog camera and there's a physical print, do people ever say, "I want that, throw that away, yes. tear that up"? <laughs> Tell me about an example of that. Oh okay. no, they always are like. Oh, so I can have that. <laughs> right. And I'm like, well, no, because, you know, I'm working on this project and I need the, I need it. But, and then that's when, you know, the, the digital age is nice because I can be like, well, let's exchange info. You know, what's your Instagram or whatever is typically what would happen yeah. for whatever reason. Um, and then now, I mean, even to this day, you know, with this guy, I'm like, we connected over social media somehow four years later. And I'm like, you know, if you're comfortable, send me your address and I'll put a print in the mail to you. Oh, that's so cool. that's what I've always cool. said. I'd love to give you a print. And so I make I make prints for yeah, everyone that I can. Great. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, they're not getting that original. No, that's <laughs> right. So now this was a project 10 years in the making. That is a huge part of your life. At what point yeah. did this transition from being something that you did as kind of like, I'm going to a club, I'll bring my camera along, it'll be fun, to... When did you start to see it as a coherent artistic statement, a book, a gallery show, whatever? When did that start to coalesce in your mind? I mean, I think like the first couple times I went out and shot was in 2011. And I really just did that to test the camera. And I was like, oh, I'm going out with some friends. I'll bring the camera and see how it does because it has the flash. Yeah. And so I knew I wanted to test that. And right away, I was like, oh, this is something. And then I, I did that a couple times and got some really good stuff and realized, okay, I need to, I need to really think about this and, and make this a priority in, in what I'm working on right now. So fairly early then. Yeah, because 2012 um, was a big year for shooting this project. I mean, and that was in the very beginning, but... I think also my life was just in a place where, you know, I could go shoot a lot. Yeah. I didn't have a whole lot else going on besides like day jobs. So 
So given that you started to see it as a potential artistic statement, maybe that's a boring way to describe it. Maybe you, given that you started to see it as a show or a book or whatever fairly early on, this is going to sound like a dopey guy question, but how did you know when you were done? Well, it was really hard to figure that out, actually. And sometimes, you know, I'm kind of like, oh, I could still, and I, I might, you know, because it's so much fun. And, and this city is, it's so beautiful. There's such a good energy here. There's unending material for this project. I mean, there's just more and more and more of it. But the real kicker was that when I first started in 2012, I was working at that photo lab still. I was getting the wholesale. Yeah, uh, it was eight bucks a pack. Eight bucks a pack. So that's 80 cents a shot per box. Mm. Um, So I'd go out and I'd shoot 60 images, 80 images in a night. Um, and not really think about it because I knew that it was worth that money. You know, by the end of the project, they had discontinued the film. I was buying it from like guys on eBay and like some weird guy. I went to his apartment, you know, and bought <laughs> a bunch of film out of his refrigerator for hundreds of dollars, oh, hundreds man. and hundreds of dollars. So and I was like, man, I can't afford this. And now, you know, it's, you go on eBay, it's $200 a box. It's yeah, outrageous. I, when I yeah. see Brooklyn Film Camera about to announce the yes. flash sale, I get really excited. And then it's 75 bucks a pack and I just back away. It's too, that's- Oh my God, not even though. Like the last time I, cause yeah, a few weeks, the last time they did it, I was like, all right, Emily, maybe this time you just need to get a couple boxes. You know, eight, it was $98. Oh, God. I mean, and, and for me, I'd be like, that's like, that would have been 10 boxes. Yeah. And now I'm just going to get 10 shots. It, it's yeah, like, it's I just insane. have a hard time Yeah. doing it. And, you know, then on April Fool's, they did that thing. Did oh, you know I was the worst. Oh, it killed, that was oh. the worst. Jeff even commented on it. Yeah. I Remember? freaked out. I yeah. freaked out and I was like, oh, my God, I'm like going to do all, you know, and I had these big plans and man, I was pissed. Yeah. I was pissed. That was not nice of them. No. No. <laughs> So let me ask, this is obviously in, in a very simple segue to the next question I want to ask. So FP3000B has not been made since I believe 2018 or right? Something like that. I think that's great. Yeah. And those, I have a lot of it in the fridge. I have a lot of B and a lot of FP100C that I'm hanging. I'm, fr- I'm afraid to use it now, which is yeah. super crazy. Given the demise of that medium, how do you feel about future projects with peel apart film do you feel you have to move on do you feel that you have to move on from a certain type of analog photography because the medium doesn't really exist anymore um i don't know i mean it's something that i think about a lot and maybe i'm just like in denial Mm. (laughs) i don't know i don't know i don't do other polaroid Modes of expression interest you as much? Does Instax black and white interest you? Me neither. Um, And I mean, I I just think like the thing that the FP3000B had big like things that made it great. The contrast, the sharpness, the fact that especially for how I was using it kind of like out with people and it almost and i'm not a performance person but there's there was something that was performative about it where you're like oh let me make this picture with you and now let's reveal it yeah. you know yeah. and they stand there and they watch you peel it and, and then everybody goes really oh cool. and it's this magical kind of 
you know, group thing. And that was possible because it's 15 seconds. Right. Now I tried it with the color and the color was two minutes. And especially at one thirty in the morning and people are a little drunk or whatever, they are not hanging around wow. for a minute and a half. And sometimes you don't really want them to. Right. <laughs> you don't want to. It's fine you know, for you to go off and drink right. more. Yeah. And so there were a lot of reasons. There are all these reasons why that particular film worked for my, for what I was trying to do. Yeah. Um, more recently, I'm, you know, I'm kind of, interested in some other like medium format um color film maybe for some other i'm not sure i want to stick to analog capture if i can um why is that you know and i mean maybe it's something that you get used to with the digital but but i just haven't ever gotten there with it um, the way that it looks on that tiny screen and then you pull it into the computer screen and there's just this disconnect for me. Completely. And maybe people that shoot digitally all the time would hear me say that and think that I'm like an idiot for saying that. I'm sure it's a thing you get used to, just like you can kind of see the image with a film camera. You see, you see it before you see it. So I'm sure that there's got to be a version of that that's happening with seeing it on the little screen and then on the, or some, it just hasn't clicked for me. Yeah. Um, and there's something about like the depth, the depth of the um, contrast in film that I just am not finding with digital so much. And I think that um, it's important that it's an object. I like that yeah. it's a canister and you, you know, you have to, fiddle with it and know exactly how it feels in your hand to get it in the back of the camera right and um the graphic design of the packaging of the you know all those little things are, are part of it you are me. speaking our language 100 yeah. percent. i i feel the same way about that i'm and i don't think it's just sentimentalism or yearning for the tools of my youth or something there is just something palpably different about image capture with an analog process. It's just, it has a, just a different feel to it. And the thing that you said in passing, which I think is so important is there is only one of those Polaroids. There's only one. You can scan, yes. you can make a very, very high quality pigment print from it and it'll be lovely. But the fact that there's only right. one, there's just something yeah. really ineffable and profound about the existence of that physical object in space in time it's one thing i saw a show of totally. yeah, i saw a show of andy warhol's sx70s and uh -huh. i had seen them reproduced thousands of times but there is no substitute for going this piece of film was in the room with nico you know like yeah this object totally. she was there yeah. the light rays that bounced off her are here <laughs> Isn't that weird? It's just a weird yeah. thing to think about. But the actual, yeah, I think about that stuff a lot. Well, and you know, all those nerdy things like the smell and, yeah. you know, oh, figuring oh, out, oh, especially dark for me. Room. Yeah. Like, um, I've, it took me a while, a couple of years to figure out a good system for carrying all the stuff that I needed. Yeah. Um, and like, what box do you put the print, the actual Polaroid prints in? So that doesn't get messed up, so but that you can slide it in quick, so that you can kind of pack up and move on to the next thing. And <laughs> I got what one. you got? I got this yeah. thing. Have you seen these guys? Have you seen this? I have not seen that particular one. I mean, a couple of guys make these. I just bought this. This is a three D yeah. printed object. Oh, weird! With a print dryer on one side, 
and a negative dryer on the other in case you want to save the oh, negative. Nice. Isn't sure. that badass? eBay. That's very fancy. <laughs> but it's, yeah. You know, and I was just very, like, not so fancy about it. I just always had, you know, I would always have an empty box right. of the film. Yeah. That was my yeah. box for the night. And then, you know, that I would kind of like slide all the negatives in a gross, gooey stack <laughs> into the yeah. other side of the camera bag. And, you know, then at the end of the night, I'd like peel them all apart. And, you know, that was one thing I always wished that I could have um, had a better system for that. But I mean, especially in the beginning when I was doing 60 of them, I don't think oh, anyone could. Uh, definitely. Yeah. One final thing, just one question that just occurred to me in passing I wanted to ask you about. If somebody parachuted you into, say, Tulsa or New York City or Chicago <laughs> or Seattle with the same amount of FP3000B, would you be able to make a project which was late night Polaroids Seattle? Or is it very specific to the Savannah that you know? You know, I did this like Instagram takeover for the New Yorker a couple of years ago, and I had several magazines at like one from uh, San Francisco and someone from another big city get in touch with me and say, Hey, can you come do this? But in our city. And I was like, hell yeah, buy me the film. You know, yeah. that unfortunately that did not happen, oh. but Oh my God, I would love to do that. I obviously I'd have to do some research and find, find some friends, you know, and find out where the good spots were, but wow, I would love that would be amazing. Yeah. I would love that. Boy, I sure hope you get that opportunity because I just feel like when I saw Late Night Polaroids, as as coherent and beautiful a statement as it is, it makes me want another volume. You know, Robert Rauschenberg, who I admire as an artist, he, you know, he was an avid photographer as well. And he did a series of books called In and Out City Limits. And he started yeah. with these cities that he knew, like Boston and New York. But then he would go to places he didn't know so well, like Chicago, and document them. And it had kind of a stranger's view of the city, which uh -huh. is kind of fascinating. And I would just, I hope you get the chance to do that. I just think you have such Absolutely. an eye and such a gift. And I just, I don't want that project to be over. Well, thank you. That's just so nice. I don't want it to be over either, but you know, <laughs> yeah. All right, Gabe, anything else from you there, man? No, I definitely want, we will definitely post how to get the book and uh, more information great. about you because it really is a beautiful book and it's, it's great on a coffee table, on a desk, anywhere you want it. It is a great book, great gift. Thank you Just so saying. much. Emily, really chime terrific. in real quick with your Instagram and what website people can go to to buy your book. Yeah, um, you can just go to my personal website, emilyearlphotography.com, to buy the book. And uh, follow me on Instagram, at emilyearlphoto. And, uh, yeah, thank you so much for having me. You guys. Emily, you're a delight so and great. such a gifted artist. And thank you for being our guest. It's exciting having you on the show. Thanks so much, Emily. Thank you. My pleasure. Okay, and we're back. Thanks again to Emily for uh, being our interview subject. Go to her website, buy that book. It is so damn it good. It is such a great book. Seriously, I know we kept saying it, but it's really amazing. Yeah. We would love to hear from you about your instant film experiences. Um, we've gotten such a good response on the email address, idreamofcameras at gmail.com. And really thoughtful emails. I mean, it's it's fantastic, like detailed, and we love it. Yeah, we love like interacting with you guys. Like, 
you know, it's funny. Our our mode of interacting with our listeners has been to respond to their emails. Yes. And sometimes we cull things to read on the show, ideas that we get from those emails. We are definitely filing away your pitches for future episodes. So get in touch with us. That's the easiest way to do it. You can also put us on blast on Instagram, either in comment sections or uh, in DMs. We have our individual Instagrams. I'm S. Jeff Greenstein. Gabe is at Gabe Sachs, and we have the I Dream of Cameras Instagram feed as well, which is quite lively. Oh, yes. <laughs> we are adding to it all the time. Yes. So um, what else do we have? Thank yous. We have our usual thank yous. Go ahead, Gabe. The two people that uh, have made our lives so much easier and make us look so much more professional than we are. <laughs> Keith Greenstein yes. and uh, Fred Corey. Thank you so much for logos, graphics, music, everything that you bring to the show. We love it. Yes, and we have some special plans for those two gentlemen. Oh, yes, we do. We're not going to tell them. Nope. But we have some plans for them. Like, you know what, Gabe? Because they haven't done enough for us. That's right. <laughs> That's right. They should do more. I agree they with need you. to do more. I agree with you. All right. Well, thank you for spending this hour with us, listeners. And once again, thanks to Emily for joining us. Please check her out and sign us out of here, Gabe. Please, please write to Polaroid every day and say yes. we want those Peel Apart films back. Please. That's all. There you go. That's all. And with that, that has been episode 11 of I Dream of Cameras. We did it. We'll see you next time. Mm-hmm.